Hello, and welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik. And I'm Greg Lindsay. And it's just us this week, the two of us hanging out, catching up on architecture and places. Uh, I'm coming to you live from New York here at the Freehand Hotel, my favorite. We should discuss hotels as a starting point, Dan, uh, from an architecture and urban perspective. Um, but we've got a lot of news to cover. I'm going to talk a bit about, I'm not taking on not one, but two new jobs. You have just, I believe, consecrated the world's tallest timber building, which I want to hear more about. And yeah, lots more going on in the worlds of architecture and all the other fun stuff we like to chat about. So, so I guess we'll kick it off with you. What have you been up to? Well, I just came back from Milwaukee yesterday, um, our, our kid cousin city to the north. And uh, they are the proud new owners of the world's tallest timber building. It is 284 feet, 25 stories, uh, 86.6 meters. And while it's just slightly over the record that was previously held by a building in Norway, uh, it's significant because of how much taller it is than any other timber building in the United States, which has some of the most restrictive codes with respect to uh, fireproofing and uh, the fire exiting and the amount of basically the, the whole system is predicated on the idea that, you know, if you're building a timber building, it's going to be the same kind of balloon frame construction that you use for your single family home. And, you know, that doesn't really work very well in a high rise scenario. Uh, they're really just now bringing the code around to understand mass timber, which is basically super plywood that um, has the strength rating and the durability of concrete and steel, as well as the fire resistance, importantly. And they were very keen to show that uh, even to the tenants who were moving in as we did our presentations. Uh, they had a, a couple of tables set out out front, including with actual uh, rangers from the U.S. Forest Service showing uh, the, the charred trunks of trees that they had tested, um, you know, to, to prove the char rate uh, that would be uh, protecting this building. Uh, should there should there be a fire, which is I was, pretty unlikely. I was literally going to ask if they like tried to light parts of the building on fire in front of people to be like, see, you can't do this. It reminds, it reminds me of the old trick about like uh, C4 explosives, like, you know, that um, they're so stable that you, you can light it on fire and nothing will happen. You know, you need an electrical signal. So pi picturing them trying to like, you know, set blocks of CLT on fire just to demonstrate. But, um, sounds fun. How are the tenants moving in? So yeah, you didn't say what kind of building it was. Is this is a residential building? I take it. This is a residential building. It's high end rentals. Um, you know, big amenity floor. They're going to have you know a pool up there. Uh, the pool is at the top of. It's a little bit of a. Well, I won't call it a cheat, but there's nine floors of parking in concrete prior to sixteen floors of timber on top of that, and on the top floor of the concrete structure is where they're locating the pool, um, which is quite nice. They've filled in the water. Um, you know, it's got sliding windows to go to the outside and, you know, there's great views all around. Um, the big sell, of course, is that you get so much exposed timber in the building, which is probably more remarkable than its height, honestly. Um, you know, it's the amount of timber they were able to expose while executing a, a high-rise rental building. Um, yeah, so they uh, it's around 50%. So in the units, you can see the, the bottoms of the floors above, which are exposed timber. And then some of the, um, some of the uh, columns are also exposed. Uh, and then they run all the services down the middle, um, encapsulated in, in drywall. So 
it, it pretty much where it counts, they expose the timber and, and it and it gives a, a luxurious kind of sheen to everything. And there was plenty of column hugging going on. I was supposed to ask. So yeah. So I mean, you know, how what was the tenant reaction or what was the whole feel to it? Is 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 you know mass timber luxurious and people feel the luxury of being surrounded by that much wood? Like, did you have a chance to interview anyone about like? Did they choose the building because it's CLT or it's just, you know, they wanted a luxury residential building? You know, that's a good question. Um, I didn't get to talk to anyone directly about that. Um, but according to the contractors and the developers, you know, really they were just kind of responding to the fact that it was it had top level amenities and the timber was kind of a nice to have. But the industry is very excited about the building. And, you know, we're, we're obviously part of that machine and uh, generating that excitement. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's a, I think it's a sell as a, but it could be on a list of 10 or 15 luxury items that, that may take precedence in the average tenant mind. Yeah. Well, the next question. So if this is now the tallest at 284 feet, but there's more on the drawing board, right? I mean, Shigeru Ban has been designing various wood skyscraper-ish things for Vancouver skyline, I believe, but like what's on the drawing boards then? Is this only going to be a temporary record because there's stuff under construction right now? Yes, I don't think you'll be held for very long. Um, I hope it's longer than <laughs> I hope it's longer than the 90 days that Milwaukee had the world's tallest building, according to the alderman standing behind me when I made a joke that the last time Milwaukee had the tallest anything was when they built the bronze Fonz statue. It's the tallest statue of the Fonz anywhere. Uh, he's like, no, actually, City Hall uh, in 1893 held the record for 90 days. Uh, I have to double check that, actually. That That is not something that I was aware of with my council background. Um, but um, to answer your question about the future, uh, I, yes, there's plenty on the drawing board. There is a building in Switzerland uh, by Henning Larson uh, called Rocket and Tigerly uh, in the city of Winterthur, which is supposed to be 100 meters. So that would be you know, in 300 foot range, uh, about 20% higher than this one. There is another plan afoot in Perth, Australia, um, for a similar building of similar height. I forget the exact height, but it's in the 100 range. And then the company Atlassian, which makes the software um, Slack um, and a bunch of other um, softwares for wikis and things like that, Confluence. Uh, they have a headquarters building under construction by shop architects out of New York uh, in Sydney next to the central station, which will be a steel timber hybrid. That's going to be in the 40 story range. Forget the exact height, but that's probably over hundred meters as well. Dang. I would say the one tiny correction there is uh, Atlassian does not do Slack. That's owned by Salesforce now, but yeah, they're like the big Australian productivity company there. And um fascinating uh, founder as well, because he's trying to buy coal plants and shut them down kind of thing. They're like, they're, they're a, Fascinating example of sort of progressive software billionaires in the Australian context, but but uh, well, that sounds fascinating. Then, so yeah, well, I look forward. To, I, now I have something to visit the next time I'm in Milwaukee, the Good Land, as Alice Cooper once talked about. As well. <laughs> yeah, and it's an interesting group of people developing the building too. They're actually uh, immigrants from uh, what was then the Ukrainian SSR in 1990. Um, it's a father-son team, although the son was probably about five when they came over. Um, but they started as house painters. And then the owner of the house that they were painting said, you know, I don't really want to hold on to this. Do you want to buy it off me? And they said, sure. And then they suddenly found themselves becoming property developers. And now they own the Oriental Theater 
in uh, Milwaukee where there was a screening of a documentary about the construction of this building. Um, and if you haven't been to the Oriental, that's another great stop. Um, it's a lovely old movie palace from the probably 19 teens. Very nice. Well, I'm here <clears throat> on my part, I'm here in New York, um, here for the week for an event that I am hosting for Patcraft, which is a sub-brand of Shaw Industries, which some of you may know is a, a massive manufacturer of commercial flooring tiles. Um, there's a couple of fascinating aspects of this. One, like, you know, uh, commercial flooring is like the area where like cradle to cradle manufacturing really took hold, figuring out how you could do incredible uh, recycling of petroleum-based materials. That was Ray Anderson when he was leading Interface sort of pushed the way, but Shaw and the others had to keep pace. So there's some really interesting like sustainability stories uh, in commercial flooring, which normally, normally you wouldn't expect. Um, but the event I'm hosting for them tonight, the Packcraft folks, is sort of exploring the future of flexible space and mixed use post-pandemic because, as you can imagine, a commercial flooring company is very interested in what the future of commercial floors look like. Um, but also, yeah, it's going to be an interesting event. It's a relatively intimate, but I've got Brad Hargreaves, who's the CEO of Common. And if you follow Co-Living, you know, which is a sort of a pre-pandemic, a bit of a fad there, the notion of like smaller personal living spaces, but more managed corporate services. And instead of leases, you have memberships, which created all sorts of interesting sort of, I think, legal stuff. But Common was the one that survived, you know, the big shakeout during the pandemic and sort of expanded in various directions and created various sub-brands. So Brad's going to talk. And then we're also being joined by uh, Evan Fain, who's a top exec at Industrious, which has sort of emerged as sort of the big post-WeWork, um, maybe darling, I guess, when it comes to sort of shared workspaces, rather than sign epic leases of their own like WeWork did and have all those huge, you know, liabilities on your books. They've partnered with like the big brokerages, CBREs and Investor. And, uh, and then actual building owners to basically run managed workspaces. And so they just opened a gorgeous new, like basically a club here, you know, a sort of a Soho House-esque space in the east side, which I'm sure he'll talk about. But um, but it's interesting because the other spaces or some of them I've seen are at the Dallas Farmers Market or in the Dallas Arts District, like all part of this whole notion of like, yeah, people might want a third place to go work, um, but it's not your typical office tower or that office tower is being reinvented. So there'll be a lot of discussion around uh, those two things tonight. Um, so that's what I'm in town for. But I would say I want to come back to hotels discussion for a moment because I'm staying at the Freehand, which is probably not, well, I don't know, certainly in New York, my favorite hotel to stay at. I'll, I'll be back here in like two weeks with both of my boys. We're staying in a room with a bunk bed that, that uh, my older son will sleep in and then the younger one will sleep in a room with me. And, and uh, But I bring it up because it's funny to me because like I'm here on business and this is a business expense. And I remember 10 years ago when I was staying at the Standard downtown LA, the Standard probably is my favorite hotel chain. Uh, I was commenting with my friend, Brian David Johnson, uh, who's a futurist who's not Arizona State, but he was remarking at the time when our first call together, he's like, hey, the standard downtown is where I stay when I'm in LA. Uh, he was working for Intel at the time. And I just remember thinking like, if I stay at the standard and you stay at the standard, like who's staying at like Weston's and Marriott's these days? So I don't know, I bring that up, but but I, I, don't know, I only asked Dan because back in the day, particularly when we were young, we loved to hang out at boutique hotels. And I'm curious your thoughts on the evolution of hotels. The Chicago Athletic Association, just up the street from you, a Roman and Williams design. I was just at the Ace of Brooklyn, uh, which is in this beautiful new brutalist concrete building, and it's a great combination of like warm wood lobby with the with the with the molded concrete. Um, really interesting yeah, sort of evolution of that. So I don't know. I don't know if I have a concrete thought there, but I am I am sort of curious your thoughts on like where you stay when you travel for this, and like you know who does stay in chain hotels anymore. Well, I, I have a short answer and a long answer. Uh, so the short answer is uh, uh, me. I still stay in chain hotels because I'm a, I'm a points junkie. Um, but uh, that's, you know, that's my personal choice. Um, it's not so much that I yearn for the familiarity, 
Although I think now that some of these larger chains have expanded to such a point that they have sub brands, which are in the sort of, you know, the hipper realm, like uh, Marriott has the Moxie, for example, that's where I stayed uh, in Portland uh, last time I was there. Um, you know, they definitely are, are shooting for the third place market for the, the, um, the sort of the hipster traveler, whether they're on business or not. I don't know. Can we call people hipsters anymore? I mean, we're talking about people our own age. No, you can't actually call them hipsters, Dan. And I know this for a fact because here in New York the other night, I went to see my first live show since the pandemic. Um, Toro Imoa, Chaz, uh, Chaz Bear, who I, whose work I love and listening to him for more than 10 years. Last show I saw of his was in 2013. But I went to like the Brooklyn Mirage, which is this huge mega venue uh, indoor, outdoor, out at like the intersection of Bushwick and Ridgewood, Queens. So like deep, deep industrial Brooklyn. And I was the oldest person there. All these kids who've listened to the last few albums. And I can tell you authoritatively, they are not hipsters. Like in the sense that, we, of course, we knew them. Like the vibe has shifted several times, for those of you who know the vibe shift essay. And um, yeah, whatever whatever they are, those kids are different than the hipsters that we knew. And, uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I look forward to someone chronicling those next subcultures and sort of what happens there so but anyway so the, uh, definitively you know they were not they are they are not hipsters but it is interesting uh, you know to trace the evolution of the boutique hotel you know um and then we, we move on from there but i did attend a fascinating session at london design week almost 20 years ago with anushka hempel tyler brule and others discussing like the evolution of the boutique hotel from the time of hempel and schrager uh, you know, pushing that sort of forward. And then, you know, these days, you know, there's been some interesting freestanding boutique hotel structures. I mean, I think the standard high line here in New York, which was, I think, then Pull Shack and is now the firm that's Ennead, uh, designed that one as a fascinating brutalist overhang. And yeah, the Ace Brooklyn, I'll have to, I'll have to look up of what they've done. Um, there is an essay I wish I, I'm kind of glad I never wrote, but I was going to write when the original Ace was being built here in New York, where I had planned for ID Magazine, which closed before I could write it, to just like write a blistering takedown of the hipster hotel aesthetic as practiced by Roman and Williams. Like they're great people, but like, but I remember one of their assistants was explaining to me how they would send semi trucks to the Brimfield Antiques Fair, which if you're listening and you know about it, Brimfield is like the mega fair for New England where like all these wasp estate sales and other things sort of wash into. And like, they just had lists of all the things that they were going to basically source for the hotel. And it was like, oh, it's really interesting. It's just peering like looking under a rock or lifting up the hood of like how like this aesthetic is constructed and like how it's, you know, which Ralph Lauren and other brands do so well. Um, but it was really interesting. It's like, you know, how do you, how do you basically build out, you know, how do you master all the details for boutique hotels? I've always been fascinated by it because if you get it 80% of the way there, you're, it looks like you're trying too hard and failing. It's like you, it's really a hundred percent perfect or, or it's a miss kind of thing. So I always respected people like Blas and Schrager with unerring eyes on that. But we'll see. Yeah, there's a great um, there's a great Amy Schumer sketch about uh, boutique hotels where they, they you show up and they give you a manual typewriter to take to your room, uh, and uh, you know everything has its own you know hipster subtitle. So instead of you know just a couch, it's like try our try our room. We we call it Splay, and our pool is called Splash. I mean, not far off at times. I mean, the, the typography and the, and, the, and the naming like that, that's heavily into standard with its like sexual double entendres and a lot of its stuff, uh, you know, particularly in, in downtown standard LA. 
Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I remember staying at the Ace Portland, uh, which probably like, you know, the epitome of the vibe, at least there 15 years ago when I was there. And yeah, like, you know, you're issued your own vinyl record player in the room. Like, I didn't have to carry it. It was there waiting for me. But I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? Really? So I couldn't I couldn't get Tylenol from the front desk, but I had a record player. Um, this is why I can't believe that that, you know, nobody thought of converting the Nakagin capsule building to this type of use because it already had record players installed in that's units. right molded into the concrete wall i think as i think we discussed previously that 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 aspect and the beautiful bronze molded ashtrays in the bottom of the ford foundation i think are like my favorite one of the examples of peak modernity right there kind of thing uh, yeah everything's in the details yeah i, I think uh I, I i definitely think the third place is alive and well and kicking i mean everybody is you know they're sick of being on zoom calls they're sick of being stuck at home they're probably already sick of being back at the office and the whiplash of trying to get on zoom calls with half the staff when they're in the office and you know just to be able to go to a, a third place that's not your office uh, not home and meet people and you know just kind of not have to worry about cleaning up after yourself it's still something of i think pretty high value and you know, hotels would do well to capitalize that, uh, especially downtown, you know, where, you know, the office traffic is not what it used to be. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, so this is an interesting conversation here in terms of like, yeah, the urbanism aspect. So, you know, I spent yesterday in New York, particularly it was my full, my first full day here. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I reached out to a couple of folks, friends and business contacts, and like no one suggested that we catch up via Zoom. Everyone had an appetite of like, let's grab a coffee. So like I'm walked from 23rd and Lex to Astor Place, had a coffee at La Colombe. Then I walked all the way down to lunch at Italy in, in around World Trade Center. Um, down there where I saw my editors from Fast Company. And then I like had to pop a train to Brooklyn. And then I had to come back and had, um, had another coffee in the Oculus of all places at Episary Balloon uh, with a friend of McKinsey. And so, yeah, related to the Chicago effort, my McKinsey friend was telling me that they are uh, working pro bono, which I thought was important for uh, for the city of New York, which has put together a whole task force starring Dan Doctoroff and others, um, you know, who ran Sidewalk Labs to basically, you know, figure out what to do with our office space. And um, it was interesting. My friend was saying to me that, you know, that McKinsey is an interesting partner for this to quarterback these efforts, because unlike if you did a CBRE or somebody else, their initial knee-jerk impulse is not to build more real estate, but to actually think about, well, should we use the real estate we have? And it is interesting to see, like, you know, yeah, Chicago, which I've talked to people like Mary Ludgan and Heitman, who's part of, like, the task force there. Like, yeah, how do you, you know, how do you bring back that street fatality as, like, a major thing? Because that ties directly into the perceptions of public safety in that sort of crisis. But, but yeah, New York's a very different vibe than Chicago. Last time I was there, I was in Chicago, oh, I don't know, definitely last fall and maybe since then, too. And, like, yeah, you could tell Michigan was really struggling with in terms of storefronts, but also just less than street traffic. And in New York, I don't know, maybe it's just me. New York feels good. Trains, they're... They're full, but they're not jammed crowded when I've used them so far. So it's actually kind of nice, although not that it helps the MTA's finances at all. Um, but yeah, there's like a real, you know, there's an urban vitality happening there. And that, my point there to bring this back around, is like the Ace Brooklyn, famously, you know, the Ace lobbies function as living rooms for the creative class. And it was absolutely the same there. I mean, an entire table laid out with plugs where I worked for a bit. Everybody in their restaurant bar area doing deals at like three o'clock on a, on a Tuesday, you know, just hanging out. Um, discussing business, like, yeah, that aspect of wanting to be face-to-face -face but not wanting to be in an office setting, more true than ever. So it will be interesting to see how those spaces are repurposed. And there's there's some interesting potential guests for us there down the road of this. I was just reading about one of the architects who specializes in exactly 
that kind of conversion or upgrading of, of New York City office space. So something for us to keep in mind for a future episode. Yeah, I definitely even I even feel like I'm starting to hear expressions like hoteling when talking about offices. And I don't think it's as literal as converting an office to seem more like a hotel. I think it's more about the, the leasing structure. But, you know, I think you could expand that into a metaphor for what the off, what the office is going to have to be in order to keep people interested in coming in. It's going to have to be probably more like a third space. No, absolutely. Um... You know, I mean, relates to that and also just the, in the sense of like uh, hoteling, you know, I mean, this comes out of consulting for a while. There's professions that have already done this, you know, uh, that, you know, that did four days, four days on client sites and one day a week in the office. So, you know, it'll be, I mean, this is why you've seen PricewaterhouseCoopers and others basically set their workforces free. So, so there'll be, a, there'll be a lot more of that for sure, you know. Um, so, but yeah, but I, it's, it's been, it felt really good. I got 20,000, 21,000 steps in yesterday, basically zooming all around the city, seeing people. So. I don't know where it left time for me to do actual work, but it was nice while it lasted. So there you go. Well, way to go. Um, you know, and I, I would look forward to, uh, to visiting you back in, in our, our origin city of our, our, our media empire uh, once again. Uh, so I have an update here from the decimated uh, shopping district of Chicago. Uh, we talked about the Durban Renewal All Project right. a couple yes. of weeks ago. Uh, so the Century and Consumers buildings uh, for the uninitiated are two 19-teens skyscrapers uh, fronting on State Street in Chicago, which uh, have in their backyard the Dirksen Federal Courthouse, 1964 Mies van der Rohe uh, building, which have lived in harmony for decades. But the, uh, the imposition of a bomb threat in 2004 caused the GSA, the government's landlord, to be concerned about the security perimeter of the building. So they purchased these two buildings and have allowed them to sort of deteriorate to the point that now they feel they need to be demolished. And Senator Dick Durbin earmarked $52 million for their demolition um, with no clear plan for what would replace them, um, which obviously would have a, a, an even more detrimental effect on the State Street uh, shopping district than the departures of various retail outlets, uh, which continues to happen. Uh, we just lost Old Navy uh, the other day. Um, but uh, there's a new plan. The Preservation Chicago and some of their allies have proposed that these buildings be converted into an archive center. Um, and it would be predominantly religious organizations, um, although it's not a religious, religiously oriented organization itself. But the idea would be that you would store archi archival material in this building on the upper floors and you could brick up the rear windows so that there would no longer be a concern about, you know, sniper positions with respect to courthouse uh, courtrooms. So it's, it's a pretty novel idea. Um, I, I would hope that there would be some kind of retail plan for the ground floor because that's really the key to everything. Um, it's not so much just preservation for its own sake, but preservation of urban vitality. Uh, hopefully they are able to um, succeed with that plan. That's really interesting. And like also, yeah, it just speaks to, I think, some of the weird novel uses. I mean, this is the thing that I'm really interested in. We'll hopefully talk about a bit about tonight. It's like, you know, we used to talk about mixed use projects. I like to talk about mixed up uses of like just bizarre program types that are going to be combined with each other. And it'll be interesting to see some will be more synergistic than others. But um, but yeah, that's interesting. A religious archival space. Um, I hadn't thought of that. Um, well, you mentioned, you know, discussing work, by the way. So I have a bit of 
personal news here, actually. I've got, I'm taking on not one, but two new jobs that will take up the majority of my time. It's one of the reasons I'm here in New York. So the New York one, I can't say who it's for, but I have been offered a fellowship, which I wrote a proposal on about the metaverse. We've discussed the metaverse here plenty of episodes, for those of you going, going way back uh, to episodes two or three, I think. Um, but my proposal is sort of looking at basically uh, how to help cities prepare for it. And I don't mean the Zuckerberg virtual reality, strap an Oculus headset on your head for 10 hours a day. I mean what Apple's building and what Niantic, which made Pokemon Go, has built. And there's Snap and there's Magic Leap and there's all these companies, which is, you know, so-called augmented or I think now we're called maybe extended reality XR or is it maybe it's a catch-all term. But, um, but yeah, if you know, if you remember Pokemon Go, which is six years ago this past weekend, where, you know, fastest downloaded app in the history of the App Store at that moment, you know, incredible fad, hordes of people chasing, you know, digital Pokemon around, um, you know, two professors at Purdue worked with the local cops there in, in Western in Indiana to look at traffic crashes around Pokestops, the sites where the Pokemon spawn and found that vehicular crashes went up 47% around those spots in the first five months of Pokemon Go. And, you know, they sort of used some back of the envelope calculations that if the same thing was true everywhere in the United States, then something like 30,000 people were injured uh, in just the first five months of Pokemon Go. So, you know, what I'm what my proposal is, and this is, you know, reach out to me, anybody who's listening here has got some ideas on this, is to basically get some cities involved at the outset to help partner with these companies and the standards bodies to start writing standards in augmented reality games so that you don't run into the street to chase the golden snitch if you're in Harry Potter land or to pursue a supervillain if you're in a Marvel's AR game or any of the others that are going to be inevitably developed for this. So it'll be interesting to see because yeah, we're hoping to write some code, hoping to do some standards, hoping to deal with, I think some of the gonna be the major equity issues as well in terms of this. And this goes back to real estate and built form because you know Apple, for example, you know there's reports that they're building a, a mixed reality headset of some kind that you know lots of hardware challenges, but they seem to be doing better than that than they have been on their autonomous car project. And then we also know that Apple at their last worldwide developer conference is moving more heavily into payments infrastructure and sort of, you know, uh, handling more payments and, you know, financing plans for purchases. So you can just sort of see an environment here where like, you know, imagine the Apple App Store, which famously takes 30% cut on anything sold there, is now being projected into your virtual AR headset and is overriding potential street frontage or is offering services that compete with retail storefronts. Um, those are the kinds of things long-term that I think, you know, the real estate industry is going to have to grapple with. But in the short term, I think there's definitely a clear and pressing need to make sure that like public safety is introduced into the AR realm. So, so I'm hoping to do that. And then my other job is, this is what I can actually announce, is I am uh, joining my friend Parag Khanna's uh, startup uh, in a limited capacity. Is, well, I guess I say limited because my title is Chief Communications Officer, helping get out the story of the tool that he has been building for the last year with his team. Uh, which is basically one of the many tools to model climate risk, um, only whereas the others all got really kind of bought by reinsurance companies or, or BlackRock and other big portfolios to help them figure out the risk uh, of climate events to their portfolios. Uh, Parag, as is his want, is really focused on opportunity. So, you know, he's wrote the recent book, Move, there about global migration. So we're trying to make the claim of like, invest now in the climate resilient regions of the future. Um, so like the pitch is basically like, yeah, let's go back to the Midwest. Let's go look at the Great Lakes, Northern Canada, uh, all the places that uh, near and dear to my particular heart, having grown up in Illinois and living in Montreal. So, so it, should be, it should be an interesting year for me ahead as I sort of like try to keep both of those in my head at once while, I, while commuting between New York and Montreal. Well, congratulations on both. That's really exciting. And uh, I, I'm going to be excited to hear like reports from the front lines of you know, kind of the 
two most important conversations really about the future of cities is how do we manage, you know, the interaction of the virtual world with the physical world? And then what do we do with physical properties and, and, and cities that are at peril because they're in low-lying areas? Is there enough room? Is there enough water? Uh, do we have enough faith in the future of the climate resiliency of, you know, uh, more temperate regions uh, further north to absorb uh, new populations. So, uh, I, you know, it'll be great to have a front seat on both of those things. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, so I'm excited to work on both. It strikes me as like, these are both important issues, particularly as we, you know, as we tape this, of course, at a period where, what, it's 40, you know, 40C in London, which is not built for it, where, you know, I was watching footage of, you know, wildfires. London is now part of the urban wild wildlife interface where there's you know, fires breaking out all over metropolitan London from this. Um, you know, 47C in, in Portugal, which is, of course, you know, where every, everyone wants to move now. And then you've got, you know, the U.S., like Texas and Oklahoma, 115 Fahrenheit. I think I saw a stat when I was, when I was in Montreal a few weeks ago where, like, you know, at one point, a third of the entire United States, 100 million people, were under heat advisories to not leave their homes. And, um, you know, it was in London, I was chatting with my friend uh, Gabriela Gomez-Mont, who ran the laboratory for the city. Uh, she's got a, she's there teaching at the Bartlett now. Uh, and she was just saying that, you know, they're issuing shelter-in-place orders. They're asking people to not ride the metro, which was struggling, uh, you know, the, the underground, struggling under the heat, but that they should stay home. And I'm like, oh, well, it's, it's good that we learned to shelter-in-place for the global pandemic, and now we will continue to have shelter-in-place, work-from-home, remote work. Um, while we shelter from various climate emergencies that make it straight up deadly for us to walk outside. So, and that's for those of us privileged to live in the global north. I can't even imagine, of course, the global south and India and what that means. So, so lots going on there. Right. And I mean, the, with the, the lack of, uh, you know, most, most homes are not air conditioned in Britain. Uh, most, uh, most of Europe, actually. A lot of the public transportation is not air conditioned. It's all reliant on air movement. Um, so they're really not equipped for this. And obviously, yeah, they don't have an army of, uh, you know, uh, water carrying helicopters like Cal Fire uh, set up in, you know, Luton Airport. So <laughs> this is going to be a real, a real challenge. Yeah, to say the least. So, so yeah, so it'll be interesting. So yeah, you can see that the two those two trends converge actually at you know the uh, this at a dystopian novel like Ready Player One, of course, or of course Snow Crash, both in which cases where the metaverse as a name comes from are dystopias, climate ravaged, impoverished worlds, and yes, and you turn to an interior facing metaverse because you simply do not want to deal with reality. So you can sort of see the convergence of those trends again. You know, cyberpunk, not a manual, but it, it was a warning. But yet here we are. So. Well, on that optimistic note, uh, I still have to say that I'm I'm very pleased that that you're on the front seat of this because if anybody can figure this stuff out, it's it's you and your network of of uh, professionals uh, who are spend all their time thinking about this stuff. Well, that's very 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 kind of you, but we'll see. I say it's going to take a lot of allies there. So again, for you know those of you who are listening, you know you know. If you know people in cities who are interested in this, uh, you know, please put me in touch. I've had conversations with public officials for like the last year. I mean, they're obviously been dealing with, you know, the deadly pandemic that's still raging. Um, but, you know, but have not had any time or energy to think about this. And, you know, if it's like, if you know, if, I think particularly with Apple coming to the fore, if it's like the iPhone, <clears throat> pardon me, if it's like the iPhone, you know, perhaps it's the next computing paradigm, in which case, you know, it spreads like wildfire, rewires human behavior, all those kinds of things that we've seen, you know, with our smartphones in our hands. 
um, you know, it's going to it's going to happen overnight. And so, you know, even the slightest preparation to avoid another situation like Uber and Airbnb and these externalities, you know, by these unregulated companies stepping in early to like partner with the industry and at least put some standards in place and, you know, create create these kinds of partnerships now, uh, I think will be key. So so we shall see. And then, yeah, also, you know, doing doing the best we can to steer money to to, you know, these great legacy cities that were designed a place like Buffalo that was designed for a population twice that it had twice of what it has today. I mean, that's exactly where we should be thinking about, you know, I mean, you know, even the United States, you know, before we get to international migration to Canada or other places, there's just, you know, there's just parts of the United States that are set up to absorb ever larger numbers of people. So it's going to take a lot of, you know, a lot of it's going to take a lot of carrots and sticks to, to make it happen, though. So but we'll see how that develops as well. So, so that's what I've got. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, uh, Detroit Rock City, man, that's where my money's going. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Prague's a, Prague's a big believer in Detroit. I mean, yeah, I mean, that Cleveland, I mean, you watch, you know, Dan Gilbert, uh, you watch someone like him who's, you know, bought up a large, large chunk of a major American city and is now doing it again in Cleveland, it would seem. He owns the Cavaliers. Last time I was there in February, there was bedrock signs everywhere. I was like, right, why not just run that playbook back and just keep running it back as long as you have the game to yourself? So, so I hope we actually start to see, you know, yeah, other efforts to revitalize, you know, these cities or further, further the revitalization. Indeed. Well, I'll uh, preface that we have a couple of, uh, couple of episodes that we're looking forward to. Um, we have a couple of uh, interesting guests coming down the line. Um, we are looking at the, there, there have been two guides, architectural guides to Chicago released uh, almost simultaneously. One is from the AIA, which is a, a, a tome that is released, uh, well, I guess it's about every five or six years, uh, depending on the availability of the editors and how much is going on in the world. Um, and uh, there's another one coming out from Dom Publishers in Germany, whose editor we've featured before, um, which focuses only on the postmodern uh, legacy of Chicago, uh, which is quite interesting. The author picked 100 projects um, starting in the late 70s up through the present. I guess he's got a pretty broad interpretation of postmodern. Um, and uh, we're going to have them kind of uh, face off and uh, just see which which projects they, f- they think are most important and what they think is going to happen to some of those key postmodern projects uh, like the Thompson Center. Um, so that's coming up. And then we've got uh, a couple of interesting uh, books. Uh, there's the Architecture of Nowhere. We're going to try to have the architecture. That's uh, not the Architecture of Nowhere. It's the Architecture of Normal. Uh, Daniel Cavan will be on uh, in a couple of episodes. We have the former CEO of HOK, Patrick McLeamy, who now has a Smart Cities initiative. And uh, we have the authors of the book uh, Typological Drift, which is about um, kind of the... Uh, the conditions and backgrounds in China that have led to some of the the bizarre phenomena that uh, that we uh, observe from overseas, and they kind of take it from the perspective of these are there are some inherently Chinese um, characteristics that have caused these these situations to happen. You know, where you have entire cities that are devoting to things like making underpants or making uh, you know, adhesive tape, and there's a bunch of small shops organized, um, you know, small family shops, as well as large corporations um, headquartered in these cities, uh, and they built sort of an ecology around that. So that's what I can think of off the top of my head. We're trying to book all those in the next coming weeks. 
Fascinating. Well, great. Well, I look forward to our upcoming slate there. I'm personally looking to see the, the slugfest over uh, over Chicago. I just feel like the the what what fate what what is the future of the Thompson Center has basically been a question like for my entire life. And I'm in my 40s. I remember uh, you know after Helmut Jahn first built that thing. For those of you who don't know, it's like it's the state of Illinois building in Chicago, and it is just a postmodern cavern and had a whole messed up uh, air conditioning system back in the day. And I think that was going to use large blocks of ice that were melting to generate cooling that uh, did not quite work as planned. Anyway, it should be good to see uh, how that one shakes out. So very excited. And, and word on the street, Google is looking at it. So that could be an interesting conversation. Well, fascinating indeed. All right, well, let's wrap it up for now. And yeah, we'll be back soon with another episode of Unfrozen with more special guest stars. Always good chatting with you, Dan. Always good chatting with you, Greg. Have a great one. Taxi, taxi, hotel, hotel. I got the whiskey, baby. I got the whiskey. I got the cigarettes. Electric super sex, automatic taxi stop, electric cigarette, love baby, hotel rock and roll discotheque, electric super